0: Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarlane, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada. A web designer and podcaster, Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Jason Grigsby. Jason is a mobile web strategist. He's the co founder of Cloud4, where they live, breathe, and dream the mobile web, and Mobile Portland, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating, promoting, and supporting the mobile technology community. Jason is also the co author of Head First Mobile Web. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Jason.
1: Hey, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going, man? Hi, Christopher. Uh, it's going well. I'm really excited. We got someone else from Portland, Oregon on today yeah. representing.
2: Right, yeah cool, and we'll be uh, talking a lot, a lot about uh, uh, the mobile web today too, so it's gonna be really a great show um, trying to develop websites for the future, uh if not the present as well that'd be also <laughs> good. so but yeah, let's just bring them on uh Jason hey everybody hey hi Jason yeah, thank you so so much for being on the show
3: of course, of course, yeah, and i, I you know with the intro there i wasn't wasn't sure if we we're going to talk about mobile or mobile, yeah'
1: um, <laughs> a little bit of both, yeah, <laughs> and, uh,
3: it's 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 really it's really great. You know, when you're at a conference, uh, particularly when it comes to um, to mobile web, you, at a good conference, when uh, half the speakers say mobile and the other half say mobile, yeah. Um, yeah. you get the perspective that you actually need. Right. Um, so, yeah, well, we, there's we, a
1: big world out
3: there, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Portland, Oregon.
2: It <laughs> yeah, was was there a reason that we should just stopped using the word cell as in like cell phone or like we just like we
3: just just... Uh the technology, cellular technology isn't always what's used in a mobile phone. Okay, gotcha. So it's techn it's
2: slightly inaccurate. Right. So 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 I should just actually get with the times then, I guess pretty yeah. much. Okay, good. Yeah. Cool. So uh so Jason, uh, what got you uh into the web design and mobile uh, industry, if you will? And what what brought you what was your career path that got you here, if you will?
3: So <laughs> I, I've been I've been doing web design since uh, ninety five, and um, uh, I saw Mosaic actually um, back I think it was ninety four, and thought that it looked stupid and that it was never going to go anywhere, and it was so much slower than Gopher, um, which uh, turned out to be completely wrong. Uh, by ninety five, I was building sites and browsing the web, and um, so I've been doing that for quite some time. I mean, I I've always had this. Intersection between um, publishing and technology. Uh, you know, I had a Commodore sixty four, and one of the one of the first things I was doing with it was creating newsletters and building stuff. And was called Geos, which was um, you know essentially a Mac like clone on on Commodore. Um, and I also had a modem when I was in the fifth grade. Or no, yeah, I think in the fifth grade I had a modem. Um, it used to be that. Uh, the modem would the 1200 baud modem for the Commodore 64 would <laughs> automatically answer the phone, and so uh, my mother would get ticked off. She'd come in and she'd uh, uh, turn off the computer a couple times when my grandmother called and the squelching started. <laughs> so as a as a coping mechanism, I actually learned to whistle at 1200 baud to get the modem to turn off. Um, so I used to be able to whistle at 1200 baud. Um, Get out. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually <laughs> not. It's apparently not that hard. I always thought it was like, this cool thing that I could do, and I told Andy Bayo this one time over drinks, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's easy. Anybody could do that." I was like, <laughs> damn it, Andy, just, wow. you just 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 ruined it for me. Um, but yeah, so uh, so I've been online for quite some time back back when everybody was um, it was bef- AOL used to be. Um, uh, Quantum Link, which I spent some time on and wow. um CompuServe. And um so the internet just seemed like a natural evolution of that. I think that's part of the reason why Mosaic seemed underwhelming at the time, because um, you know, it it wasn't that different than what I had seen with um Quantum Link and those other systems. Um, but it, you know, obviously it it went somewhere. Mm-hmm. And as far as mobile is concerned, um, you know, I guess it, it was 2000 when I got my first uh, mobile phone and also um, Palm Pilot, a Handspring Visor, at the same time, and uh, the two just seemed inevitable to be joining together. And uh, you know, at the time, the walls of my apartment were covered with large Post-it notes on uh, really big ideas on how we could, how basically, the world could be a better place if people had information in their hands when they were making purchasing decisions, and they could make decisions based on their beliefs um and then at some point i realized that you know that these devices were nowhere near being able to do that um so uh yeah so i went and did the web for 7 years and then the iphone came out and it was clear that the technology had caught up to the dreams and so we left to start cloud four so so literally like the iphone was like steve jobs got on the platform
2: announced that the iphone was up and then you guys and then you and your partners just decided to start cloud four
3: um, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that way. Um, when the iPhone came out, uh, it wasn't apparent from the presentation of the iPhone that it was going to be quite that revolutionary. Um, I mean, it looked really like a great phone, uh, phenomenal phone. Um, um, but there, there, um, there's this thing that I, I, I like to refer to as the, um, the dinner, dinner conversation, dinner party test. Um, When when I was when the web was really big, right? When we went to dinner parties, I did not want to tell anyone what I did for a living because (laughs) uh, what would happen is they'd spend the whole evening answering questions about what their business should do on the web and you know what what stocks they should invest in and you know people who had no rights, um, sort of like throwing their money at um, stupid ideas on the web were doing so and. And so it became really frustrating. Um, so then the dot-com bust happened, and uh, we'd go out to dinner, and by this time I had met my wife, and she happened to be a realtor. And we'd go to dinner parties, and and they'd ask what I do, and I'd say, hey, I'm a web developer. And they'd say, oh, that's so nice. That's so quaint. <laughs> I remember when that was a big deal. And then they asked my wife what she did, and she said, oh, I'm a real estate agent. I'm like oh, that's great! we've been thinking about investing in this house and like in this property, <laughs> and we're thinking about doing this flip and like what do you think like what do you think about the market in northeast portland and and this sort of stuff and it was really awesome for me as somebody who's naturally introverted to just let my <laughs> wife, who's an extrovert, just carry the conversations for the evening yeah. um and I remember this moment I was actually at my um my friend Chris, who's now a coworker of ours at Cloud Four. Um, he was a coworker at our previous company. He was having a party, and um, or he was at a party. I can't remember which. And he had gotten an iPhone, and the whole conversation for an hour stopped as people passed around the phone, played with the phone, talked about the phone, and it just it became really clear to me that that the time was ripe. Um, it was the same sort of thing that I had seen in the past. Um, and so you know, it was a couple months later when uh, I grabbed my co- co-founders and said, "Hey, you know, let's let's go do this. Let's go um, get ahead of the curve here. This is going to be the next wave." And and at the time, I mean, the numbers were astounding. It was just that people didn't realize it. I mean, I remember really clearly that when we when we went to go start Cloud Four, that there were 3.3 billion phones on the planet, which was one for every two people. Um, mm-hmm. But but nobody in the United States was thinking about that as really a platform that you would build stuff for. Well, maybe
1: we could talk a little bit about the state of mobile surfing now. Um, You've written quite a bit and obviously done a lot of research on the browsers that are out there, the types of phones that exist. Um, You've written about that. Could you maybe give us a little overview of where now in 2012 um, the mobile marketplace is in terms of operating systems and browsers and
3: um, sure. I, I think well first I would say that it's um it depends on the geography um mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um and you know, in the United States, um uh it's Android's number one and iPhones number two, and um, you know, I think that one of the one of the frustrating parts about looking at any sort of statistics is um whenever I hear people talking about it, uh depending on what they're interested in, the statistics that they should pay attention to differ. Um so I'll see I'll see these conversations go on in comment threads on blogs all the time where people will um will argue, you know, hey, uh, you know, um Android may be winning in market share, but you know, the iPhone is still dominant in terms of um uh, actual usage and and um you know money and and all of those things are true, right? Like everybody's perspective on this Tends to be true. Sometimes people are factually incorrect, um, but the vast majority of the time, they're 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 talking about data points that are actually correct. It's just, okay. does it really matter to you? Um, you know, if you're a startup and your startup is based on trying to build um, and sell an application, then where money is in terms of the app ecosystems really matters to you. In which case, starting with iOS probably makes a ton of sense. Um, if you're a web developer looking at web usage statistics, actually is a more meaningful measure, um, and you're probably going to end up wanting to be able to support the widest number of devices out there, um, which means that even you know, even though Android may not um, get a on a per user basis as much usage as And iPhone does. You're still going to care about Android. You're not going to ignore Android. Um, And so every every one of these projects, I think um, you you really have to ask yourself, you know, what is the? I think on a project by project basis, it's a combination of what are the project requirements, what is the functionality that I need to be able to do, can I do that, Um, when you know what browsers support that, what browsers don't support that, can I even do it in a browser? And then, what do I know about my audience, and what devices they use, and how can I use that to inform decisions about what devices um, I test on, what devices I, um, you know, reasonably can expect to have this work on, and what devices do I exclude? Because um, the reality is, is that nobody can build uh, like the way that the way that my co-founder Liza describes it is that if you think your site works everywhere, you just haven't tested enough. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, and I wrote a, I wrote a lengthy blog post when I was on paternity leave last year. Um, I was a little bored, and so I basically wrote this blog post that's um, what I called a comprehensive guide to mobile statistics, and just contained uh, every type of statistic that somebody might want, um, and particular particularly focused on places that had free sources of that information, um, and you know what questions different. Types of professionals might want to ask themselves. So, if I'm a web developer, what what statistics might matter to me? Because um, otherwise, I feel like a lot of the analysis of what goes on in mobile is really like cheering sports teams. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm a sports fan, but you know, like right. these aren't sports teams, right? <laughs> like <laughs> these are just technology
1: companies. Um, so in so, terms of browsers that are out there, I mean, is WebKit the if we're talking just smartphones, because there's, you know, obviously, and you've written a lot about the wide range of types of phones, especially in other uh countries like in and continents, like in Africa, um, where they they have feature phones, not mobile phones, or not smartphones as much. But in terms of smartphones, is WebKit the only thing we worry about? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh. That was, that
3: was a softball I just pitched. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought I thought actually you're going to ask the other question, which is like you know how much of the market is dominated by some, by WebKit, and yeah. the percentage is, uh, when it comes to mobile phones is very very high. It's um, somewhere between in terms of handsets that are being sold right now, it's somewhere between 85 and 92 percent. I can't remember where it's at at the moment. Um, yeah, but I mean even even if we could just focus on WebKit. Um, uh, as ppk says there there is no webkit i mean depending on what feature set you you want to um support uh the um the actual support of those features on various webkit based browsers is very very different um, so uh that's that means that you know you can't you can't just simply say that it's webkit and and move on mm-hmm. um and Opera, in particular, Opera Mini has a huge stronghold uh, in terms of mobile devices around the world. Um, definitely worth testing on, and it's a very different browser because it's a, a proxy-based browser as opposed to a, you know, everything being done on the client side. Mm-hmm. Um, right.
1: right. Well,
2: what are the differences like between um, Opera's proxy-based browser? Like, you no, know, like, like, like I use, I downloaded the Opera. Browser for the iPhone, and I just quickly did not use it again. <laughs> you know it's just like in terms of webkit is just like uh you know like like you said before with your statistics, like I'm total webkit fan i'm on I'm on team team webkit uh for mobile, and so uh coming from you know and realizing that you know, we need to you know think about other browsers you know for other devices. What kind of like are there some kind of fundamental differences between a uh, the proxy based uh, mini app or browser and WebKit that we should be aware of when we're designing um, uh, like web apps uh, for, for the phones
3: yeah well I mean I mean the the key differences is that um, that uh, all of the processing or the vast majority of the processing happens server side mm-hmm. so client side javascript um, and manipulation of the DOM using javascript. Is um, uh, happening inside the client. Um, You know, only a subset of JavaScript will actually happen. So that that is a a big difference between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, and then it's uh, it's uh, the Presto rendering engine as opposed to WebKit's rendering engine. So Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be another another big difference. Um, The proxy server though is much faster, and the pages are much more compact. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and another thing I noticed
2: was like um, I think. I, I could be wrong with this browser, but I mean, mis- mis- mixing up with a different browser. But uh, I thought the fonts, um, as a designer, were kind of not rendered very well on the upper mini version. Is that? Am I just thinking this wrong? Because I felt like it was all like Helvetica or something like that that was. Being,
3: being uh, it's it's been a while. I, I can't remember yeah. um, font support. Um, right. I don't remember that being an issue. We've had. Um, there are phones that run older versions of Opera Mini and mm-hmm. aren't able to upgrade to newer versions and things like that, and mm-hmm. we've run into some oddities. Uh, particularly, actually, um, one, one sort of um, gotcha which we ran into was simply um, changing the like, from quirks mode to um, different modes based on the, the dock type Mm-hmm. And we had layouts that were totally messed up unless we used uh XHTML um uh mobile profile as the doc type as opposed to HTML five mm-hmm. as a doc type. Um and you know, s- simply changing that doc type and delivering it to Opera Mini meant that the layout, you know, like on the one hand was butchered to the point where you couldn't even use it. And then on the other hand, you switched that around and everything was fine. Wow. Um Now I'm not sure if that still exists as an issue, but those are those things. And Opera Mini is available on Android and iPhone, um, so there's no reason not to test on it. Right. Um, Really, really easy to do. So if you're building a website that's
1: highly reliant on JavaScript, I mean, you're basically writing off feature phones and Opera Mini and these proxy servers. Is that right?
3: Um. Well. It depends. Uh, so, first, I would say that the definition of a feature phone and a smartphone is really up to debate. Um, so, uh, you know, if you were to walk into a store right now and buy a feature phone, um, the chances are that's going to be a WebKit based browser that's actually going to uh, do a reasonably good job of, of rendering things. Mm-hmm. Now, your user interface for interacting with that browser can be. Um, is likely to be poorer than if you were using a smartphone. You're not going to have as much memory for that device. Um, a bunch of those sorts of things. Uh, but the differences between high-end feature phones and low-end, um, say, Android devices, is really small, increasingly smaller. Um, so, so it becomes difficult when you when you sort of talk about things as feature phones versus smartphones. Um, you. What I would say is that depending on the audience that you need to serve, right? If you, when we work with clients who are um, trying to reach a global audience, and in particular um, trying to reach people in developing countries um, or emerging markets, they they need to support devices that that don't support JavaScript. Um, now, when we're working with, uh, like, we've been looking at statistics in the United States. And looking at the number of devices that um, that report uh, using using device databases that you know can tell whether a device supports JavaScript or doesn't support JavaScript um, in the United States for these sort of large um, consumer oriented uh, sites, the percentage of devices that are actually hitting them using mobile uh, that don't support JavaScript is really really low. Um, to such a point where it doesn 't make sense for those organizations to choose to take functionality that 's core, say shopping cart experiences or something that require JavaScript mm-hmm. and remove JavaScript in order to support that um, I think that whatever whenever you can build something and use progressive enhancement so that so that it 's not required you 're going to get a larger experience and um, uh, I forget who said this um uh um Scott Gell quoted this in his recent presentation at an event apart but this person had this brilliant comment on um on uh Twitter that said that that every you know every one of your users doesn't have javascript until javascript loads um basically making the point that you know sites like Twitter which built their whole infrastructure around this idea that that the client would then download all the pieces mm-hmm. um are um are not um are providing a really poor experience because of that um and you know what Scott would see when he was traveling around the world was um he would see um basically the loading page of twitter and the loading page of gmail um while he was traveling, and hmm. the page would take forever
1: right
2: right right yeah. well um, I just want to say before you too further that i just Installed Opera Mini on the, my iPad, mm-hmm. and uh, it does do basic like fonts um, styling and rendering. But um, I just load up as an example Trent Walton, who's done a lot of like CSS three typography uh, stuff. Like, like it does not even bother to try to render that CSS three. Uh, like his is he's he's pretty much known for like doing really awesome headings for his blog posts. But uh, those those just come up as straight like Georgia. Uh, uh, Serif text. So just want to. Gotcha. So just did a quick thing with that. But it is a pretty fast browser. <clears throat> I will grant you that. But, um, but yeah. So.
1: Well, but yeah. why don't we get into some nitty gritty stuff with mobile development? And one of the you know, hottest things, which really was simply a technical question and now has become you know, more like a political question, is about responsive images or how do we deal with images in the mobile? Space and uh, Jason, you've done a lot of research on this, and um, maybe you could just sort of lay the groundwork for uh, what the issues are and, and where we are now with uh, dealing with images. Not only with the fact that we have these different uh, devices that have different form factors, but also these now we have these new displays, at retina displays with much higher pixel density. Right, right,
3: yeah. It's um, it started. Uh, um, we were doing research for the book, and uh, we decided that the second chapter was going to be on mobile-first responsive web design. Um, and everybody had been talking about mobile-first responsive web design, and so I went to go look for sites that were doing mobile-first responsive web design, and um, I had a lot of trouble finding them. And, and the main thing—the main thing that I was looking for was um, my my assumption. Was that the main reason why somebody would do mobile first responsive web design? Was to um, to avoid the performance hiccups that come from when you do a site a desktop site and then just use media queries to make it look good on a mobile device. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to think of that as akin to um, you're going to have a bunch of people over uh, and you don't have time to clean your house, so you just shove everything in the closet. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> That's what, um, I well, I mean, the vast, vast majority of responsive web designs are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, they look great on a mobile phone, just like your house looks good when you do that, but. You know, in the same way in which you can't really claim that you've cleaned your house when you do that, you can't really claim that you've done something to optimize the experience for mobile when you do that. So sure you're talking about
1: things like hiding content
3: and things like hiding that. hiding content um, using images that are sized for desktop and then just um, simply re- having the device download the full large size image and then you know resizing it on the fly, right? Um, yeah, at the time last spring I went and did I went and looked at um over a hundred sites that were on the Media Queries gallery and um ran them all through a proxy server and um manually watched the activity, which uh <laughs> um other people, uh particularly Guy Pajarni, who did uh, an updated version of this test this year, was like, Man, are you crazy? You really watched them all by hand? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was trying to learn. Um and uh, I'm crazy, uh, but uh, what I found was that that there were there were basically like three sites that the um, the mobile version was you know significantly smaller than the desktop version, hmm. and the reality is is that for most sites, particularly any site that's got a lot of images on it, um, it should be significant. Most sites should be significantly smaller. Um, when uh when steve Souders runs his uh http archive across the web and looks at the pers- like what the composition of web pages are um i think it's like 65% of web page size on average comes from images um so if that if images are resized appropriately for the device um that means that the the pages on mobile should be significantly smaller and they're just not And what Guy's test found, he did an updated version this year, looked at 340-some odd sites, and he he basically found that 80% of them were the same or larger um, than their desktop equivalent. Um, And there were, he found 11 sites that were significantly smaller um, and he felt like ten of them accidentally did this, that it was actually mm-hmm. bugs in their code that made them smaller, <laughs> and <that> there was <laughs> that there was one that looked like it was intentionally smaller so um, so anyway, so that that sort of got me on this this track of okay well if we're going to if we're going to actually do mobile first responsive designs, and one of the main reasons why we want to do it um, is to deliver um, appropriately sized assets um, you know, baseline assets that are small and then make them larger as the desk, as the screen size gets larger, um, how, how do we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that it would be simple enough to go look at what the Boston Globe had done, but what they found, uh, you know, after they had found a solution for the issue was that the browsers stopped um, handling it correctly. Mm-hmm. And, or well, actually, I shouldn't even say correctly. They just changed the behavior um, and so what happens now is that uh, that what they were trying to do is they were trying to set the size of images using JavaScript. And what happens now is that the browser will request the images before the JavaScript executes. And so sometimes you'll get um, both the small image and the large image getting downloaded Um so all this led to, you know, all this investigation into various different techniques to solve this problem. And the realization was is that that there is no solution as far as an image tag, an image element in HTML is concerned, um, that's reliable. Um, every solution that we have is um, is it, they've either got they've got one of two shortcomings. One is that they're they're based on Observe behavior of browsers as opposed to a contract between the browser and the author about how images will be downloaded and the order in which they will be handled, Um, and so you end up with the potential for race conditions, and that's in essence what we see with um, uh, what we are seeing with the Boston Globe's uh, first implementation of responsive images, Um, or you end up with uh, solutions that that uh, take and sort of make make your images no longer semantic. Um so you put so you put the image tag inside of a no script tag. By putting it in a no script tag, you absolutely know that it's not going to download, but um but you've just changed your markup in a way that's that's um that's not semantic. Um uh, the all of this comes from the fact that the image tag only has one source. If we were doing things in CSS, um, if we could convert every image to CSS backgrounds, we wouldn't have this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's practical, right like you know CNN, almost every article that CNN publishes has an image in it. Um, they shouldn't be modifying their styles every time they're going to add an image, and you know these images are content right. Um, so yeah, so we uh, we started trying to figure out how to solve this problem, and uh, a bunch of us at various points made uh, attempts to talk to people on the W3C or the WHATWG lists, and um, kept getting told that it wasn't an issue. And then um, finally, for whatever reason, we all got really like we just one time wouldn't give up on the list mm. and just kept pounding at it, pounding at it, and to the point where the list really got taken over. And finally, somebody said, "Hey, you guys should really like. This isn't the place to have this conversation. You should go create a community group." And so we're like, "Okay, you know, we don't know how the standards process stuff works. We'll go create a community group." <laughs> right. We went off and created a community group and spent a bunch of time writing a, a a spec, proposing the picture element and and all this stuff. And we um and then at some point we found out that that there was going to be this new attribute on. The image element called source set uh, that was going to basically do the same thing. And um, that not only was it, you know, it was like proposed on the list, and, um, you know, within a few days later, it was actually in um, in the spec. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> And you know, in retrospect, there were some problems there. There were some breakdowns of communication. The the person who told us to go create the community group. Uh, when you talk to the people who are active on the WG list, like I think that may be the only email that person has ever sent to that. <laughs> we, uh, we have no idea who that person is. Oh uh, no, <laughs> that's awesome. And uh and when um when uh, uh Ed um or uh, I guess actually Ted, he goes by Ted. Uh, had proposed the the source set. He didn't mention the fact that he had gone through and read a bunch of the community groups um, information before he came up with that proposal. And so it looked like it essentially looked like Apple just comes in and creates this spec, and you know, hey, everything everything's solved. And you know, thank you authors for you know going off here. And um, we you know, it just seemed like we had been been told to go spin our wheels. Um, right. And I still think that there's some breakdown in communication the the standards the people who are really involved with standards will say that they they absolutely want developer involvement in uh, and needing to know what our priorities and getting feedback and this sort of stuff mm-hmm. um, but when you actually have something that as from the outside web developers think is really important it's it's not clear at all mm-hmm. how to mm-hmm. how to engage right uh, right but I think we're in a good spot right now. Um, you know, There isn't a solution. Source set isn't going to be the solution um, mm-hmm. because it's even people who are uh, very well versed in standards and spend a lot of time in that space um, were really confused by the syntax when it first came out. And I don't think it fully addresses um, the use cases. It's not as clear as it mm-hmm. could be. I'm not sure if picture's going to be it either. Um, and so discussions continue, and in the meantime, um, I've been recommending to people that they check out uh, Scott Jell's um, Picture Fill. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, um, How does he call it Picture Fill? I think he calls it Picture Fill. Yeah, Um, Yeah, which is a div-based solution that sort of mirrors the markup of um, the picture element or the proposed picture element, but uh, doesn't use picture, doesn't bring that into web pages, since we don't know that that's actually what the element is going to be. Mm-hmm. And um, and then on the server side, I think you absolutely need to have some way to, um, uh, you know, you should have a module or a, a function or something that's handling your images, such that when the real standard comes out, Mm -hmm. you can just swap out um, that picture fill um, syntax with the correct syntax.
1: So, I mean, just to be clear, you and some other people had formed this community group and you were lobbying for a new element, right? The picture element. Correct. And the whatwig and the people working on HTML5 had, had come up with a new attribute for the already existing image tag, right? This is the source set attribute.
2: Well uh, well uh, I was well, there, but, what, but, what? Yeah, it was like it was
3: sort of like a parallel almost in a way, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So And I and I would say that, that the, the I would say that there were individuals on the on the What WG list. Mm-hmm. Um uh like it's I think the other sort of fallacy is to think that that there's any sort of um Common vision, <laughs> the uh-huh. WG list, right? I mean, right. it's a bunch of individuals who, you know, either work for other companies or um, or have self interest or whatever it is. I mean, there's there's uh, the list isn't a you know a monolithic thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but uh, we continue a pace, and I think yeah. um, uh, there's been some discussions lately about trying to trying to actually get some of the people who are heavily invested in this um, this problem uh, to meet face-to-face mm-hmm. um, and hash it out. Uh, my, are, th- are there my, any actual imp- implementations of
1: SourceSet in any browsers?
3: No, no. So
1: there's no implementation of any
3: of these ideas yet? in anything. I so, don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen any. Um, there is a... So sourceset is a is very, very similar to um, something that was proposed for CSS uh, called Image Set
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and Image set is actually in uh, has been committed to WebKit um, and uh, Well, yeah, there are things that are under NDA that come out mm-hmm. sometime later that uh, support it. Cool. Um, and and so and that's actually a really neat addition on the css side um because what what it's essentially doing is it's um it's primarily focused on on handling different pixel densities and right now you could do the different pixel densities using media queries but you can end up with um the same image pretty far apart in your css mm-hmm. just because it could be um you know you could end up with uh multiple media queries and you know it just it, you end up you end up um with maybe the small size and the retina size and you just end up with things really distributed across your css file an image that allows you to bring the declaration of different resolutions of images all into one um yeah. Yeah. one statement one declaration yeah. which is uh which is really nice and convenient right. um i don't think it adds any functionality that's not already Available in CSS, um, but just makes things a lot lot clearer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, I think just um, to back, I think um, the W three C like uh, they do have community groups, and I, they came out with them. I don't know like I don't know how long it's been, but they were like, "Hey, we have community groups now. We can like you know in order to strive for more feedback from the community at large, because I think that's what they're what they what they need and they keep on asking for. But in terms of you know scaling. And actually like when they actually get it, I think it's totally different. Like uh just the just the number of people who are um you know, on this uh responsive image uh issue alone. I think we just have them just knock on the door, people were like, I, I don't know what to do with like fifty plus people who really want this problem solved, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like Well
3: know. and it it actually um the day that the responsive images group formed, um, it took down the community group server. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much so much demand um i think I think right now that there's actually a, a bit of trepidation on the part of browser makers on touching this issue mm-hmm. like I feel like it became particularly when SourceSet got um announced and um it seemed like developers were really ticked off about it and i mean the the whole th- you know it went from it went from this place where um every time Images were brought up as an issue on the list. Um, people were saying, "Hey, it doesn't seem like this is really an issue. Are you sure this is really an issue?" To the point where the the mailing list, the WHATWG mailing list, was a hundred percent or almost a hundred percent responsive images for like a three week period. Right. No, I mean, no <laughs> it was so. And so I think that um, that a lot of the browser makers have have um, sort of stopped talking publicly about <laughs> stuff because it's just, it's too much of a minefield. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get a chance to get together and sort of hash things out face to face. And, um and you know, and that uh, we'll, we'll be more rational about it and have conversations. Cause uh, I'm, I'm personally am not wedded to picture. Yeah. Um, I, you know there are people who come in this happens all the time people come in and they'll, they'll propose um, hey what we really need is a different image format for handling different res- different um, image resolutions and you know something like jpeg 2000 where you can have one image file and it handles you know it handles everything from retina images all the way up, all the way down to small images and the browser only requests what's needed and i'm like i I would love that yeah um i you know like, and can I have a pony too right like <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know I don't know how to make that happen right you I know, don't know what
2: yeah that that's like that's me that's I'm the guy who said that i like, one of the guys who said that, but uh because yeah, I feel like uh having one image and or like like a file locker, if you will, or short locker, and just saying, hey, here's whole bunch of images in there, uh different resolutions, go get you know let the browser do its work. Is beyond the scope of you know HTML and JavaScript, and which is like totally outside my dom- domain of expertise. But there's actually image formats that are out there already, like you know JPEG 2000 and FlashPix, right. that handle that. And I'm like, well, we know, you know, we know where the browser vendors are, <laughs> you know. So let's go ask them, you know, how we can implement that. I mean, if if we're able to solve uh, bandwidth issues with video, I think we could. Pretty much solve a lot of issues with with image. Uh, we just need to have people like you know blow the dust off of image specs that you know probably been laying around for ten years or something like that, and just you know see if they can work on implementing them. Because I, I just feel like the uh, the picture format, uh, the picture fill, is just like opening up a can of hurt um, for the web. I mean, because you know the, when you have an image tag, uh, it's just one image. You know, you can have a JPEG, a GIF. Tiff, uh, TIF, sorry uh ping uh and um yeah, but uh and you can actually um you know and the browser will just resolve the issue you know you don't you don't have to worry about it and by it, kind, of, it, it, <laughs> kind of having people like say, hey, uh you need to put all these uh, images in here for all these different scenarios, I just feel like that's just not going to happen on a large well, scale
3: yeah there's there's a couple of things so first um uh the One of the issues with the image format one is is trying to figure out what we would do for backwards compatibility
2: mm-hmm.
3: and on video we were you know like we still ended up with a new element mm-hmm. and um we ended up with declaring different sources um and so you know on the image side of things like um a new image format i i don't have any sense of what the licensing constraints would be mm-hmm. you know so um so that that is something that has to be. Figured out by the browser makers, right like obviously we can't we can't sort that out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the um, one of the things that I, that I, I spent a bunch a bit of time documenting is the difference between um, having the same image at different resolutions mm-hmm. and what I called the art direction use case, yeah. which is um, you've got the same image. The image is absolutely content, but the the crop of the image, the um, you know, I guess particularly the crop of the image might change at different resolutions. Um, so the example that I give is uh, that I used in my blog post was a photo of Obama at um, I think it was at the Chrysler uh, plant talking at a podium, and for a large screen, it would make a lot of sense to. Include the full background, yeah. the car in the background, everything else. Like it, all of the background adds context. Um, but if you simply just shrink that image down to fit on a mobile screen, mm-hmm. you can't really make out Obama's features anymore. Right. So ideally, what you do is you'd recrop that image and um, bring it down so it focused primarily just on his face. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then you've you've got the same image I mean essentially right like it doesn't make sense that this would be a different image tag right it's providing the same content for the page, but it's actually um, you know it can't simply be the same image file it can simply be a jPEG two thousand image that's resized
2: right yeah, but I mean in essence you're, you're describing to me a design problem right and I would say I would suggest like if we were to have the pony of a uh, of a image blocker, if you will, we should come out and say like have a mini query uh, CSS rule that comes in and says let me manipulate this image in such a way where I can crop it and have it in this instance, and uh, just like I would have like a breakpoint for different mobile devices, and so and so to me, I'd rather have the pony than worry about what you know how to dress up the pony. I guess.
3: Yeah the the moment the moment you start um, the moment you start looking at at um, something like media query syntax
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, you bump up against the fact that that the browsers want to prefetch images before mm-hmm. they figured out layout and before they're at the point of figured out media queries mm-hmm. so and, like, so like, and so like
2: so even if I have the same image and uh, the and I just and my my CSS would be just like uh, maybe put some padding in here to crop it a little bit better. Move things around. That that would still be a uh,
3: you. Uh, okay. You would want a different source, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you don't want to download the extra materials. Mm. I mean, all this is. I mean, if somebody can solve it, <laughs> like, I don't. I you know, like, right. I don't right,
0: have yeah,
3: exactly.
2: Like like the whole like picture fill, like the whole. I was like, you know, I was in the the community group too, and like I was not. A, I'm not a big fan of picture fill, but I'm like, dude, if that's if you guys get this solved and. Knock it in there. I am okay with that. I am just whatever, whatever solution you guys get come with. I'm like, I'm not for it, but if yeah. it knocks, if it solves a problem, I am, I am there. Like, I think
3: is. one of the one of the big challenges is, um, you know, it's like uh, from an authoring perspective, we can sit here and we can theorize about, you know, what what would make sense and what wouldn't make sense, right? So mm-hmm. we. And and the the biggest frustration for me is I feel like I've been having the same conversation for a year, <laughs> right? Because the reality is is that I end up having conversations with other web developers who are all looking at the same problem and are all theorizing on ways that we can solve this. Mm-hmm. But it's really only the people who build the browsers who can say definitively that you know that this that this particular solution will actually work. Right. Um,
2: well, well so. it, that's the whole problem with standards, right? You know, you can just. It doesn't matter what standards like W three C says. It's whatever the browser vendor says. Like, you know, Apple comes along and say like, "Hey, we're gonna have animations in CSS." Okay, let's write a spec. You know, so it's um, right. so it's it's a, it's it's really at the at the, uh, the the feet of the browser vendors whether they, they take that or not. So. Right. but yeah, but um, we actually so talk
1: about adaptive images all day. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't, but maybe you too can. <laughs> and
2: another thing.
1: So, uh, so what are we to do? You, I, we've got a bunch of web developers who are listening to this podcast, and what what tack should they take right now to uh, deal with handing out different sized images for different devices?
3: So, I would say that um, uh, let's let's separate out a couple of things. Um, so, I would say that for the purposes of um, high density displays, mm-hmm. um, wherever you can. Moving those into CSS is your best bet,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, or in that case, um, there is a user preference branch of the picture fill um, uh, JavaScript library that uh, that Scott wrote, which mm-hmm. is really cool because it allows a person to select one um, x versus two x images, right. um, and you know set a cookie based on that. So um, now,
1: just to back up a second, you're talking about use CSS whenever possible. What, uh, what you're referring to, I believe, is is using a media query that checks pic- pixel density. Correct. Is that, and so correct. then, and and this only will apply, obviously, for background images. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Um, I think that it's it's um, a lot of the places where I think the biggest bang for the buck on the retina side of things comes from is, um, you know, dealing with. Um, sort of interface related things uh-huh. not to say that that images yeah. in your um, in your web page itself don't benefit from being retina um but you know it's it's any place where you end up with logos or text or things like that that yeah. have the the biggest and those are almost always in um, in css background images anyways so yeah. um and that's the place that's really really solid so um it's almost other than the fact that there are bandwidth concerns, it's it's um, it's a no-brainer to to do that. Right. Um, right. On the on the for anything that's image tag related, um, I think that that you've you're going to need some sort of um, server-side component or library that allows you to um, put in place a solution like um, the picture fill right now. Um, or if you want an easy solution, uh, something like uh, Central IO's uh, Source, which mm-hmm. will convert images automatically for you and resize them. Um, one of those two solutions, or something something like that, but that will, in the long run, allow you to replace that wholesale across the whole site without mm-hmm. without um, having to go in and, and recode pages, mm-hmm. um, because you're gonna you're gonna want to. Put something in place right now that you can tear out down the road. Okay. It's going to get whatever solution you pick right now is going to be deprecated. Yeah, uh, hey. yeah right. The, like, um, you, but uh, I will
2: say, like, uh, Chris Coyer and I worked on a uh, spreadsheet, uh, Google Docs spreadsheet. Like, we we kind of like went through and found all the responsive uh, image solutions that are out there, and there are a lot beyond like the the handful that we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also written a blog post about. Uh, you know what solution would work best for you, like I mean, what yeah. uh, type of solution? And so, uh, I will we'll have a link in the show notes, but it's it's really like a really great read, just to, for people who just want to get up the speed real fast and then have a like a solution that might work best for them. But but it's called "Which responsive image should you use?" So at CSS Tricks. So
1: so uh, do you have a suggestion for a server side solution? Uh, is there one that you like or?
3: Um on on the Drupal side, I know that uh, for Drupal, I think people have been working on a module I actually haven't tested it yet. Um, I, I um, the adaptive images that Matt Wilcox put together is actually pretty nice um, mm-hmm. as something that you can drop in and go. Yeah. Um, and And really what I'm what I'm saying is simply that um, uh, you know you in whatever system you're working with, and I would say, I would argue, I would argue that even if we didn't have this problem with images, that um, with the image tag, that having some sort of image handling um, function or functionality on uh, whatever your backend system is um, mm-hmm. is really important going forward. Because essentially, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want, you know, say you're say you're working with a content management system or even a, um, a like an e-commerce system. You're going to want somebody to upload the highest res version of that image that they have access to, and then from there you're going to want the server to automatically resize it, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, you know, and right now a lot of the systems do this, right? They resize it, they create thumbnails, they create all sorts of things, and so essentially all you're doing is you're saying, hey, when when this image gets output into this page, right now the syntax for the image is going to be. You know say the picture fill syntax um, but down the road we're you know like we're just going to go into that one function and replace it with um, source set if that becomes mm-hmm. the in solution that everybody likes right. or hey this this module needs to change because now we're all using um, you know pony image format and that solves all of our problems and so <laughs> so now're now, con- now we're converting to pony. <laughs> dot, <laughs> dot, P-O-N-Y dot p-o-n-y maybe it's dot p-n-y I don't know maybe that, that extension may already be taken and yeah and so then so then you're um, you know because I just this is one of those things where you don't I think that it should be really obvious to anyone who spends any amount of time looking at this that this is something that two years from now is not going to be the same right? Um. And so, if you're trying to build something that you you know that you don't have to go through and change every single page that has an image tag on it, like you probably want to have one thing that's outputting your image tags, and you know, change it down the road. Right. Um, so yeah, as far as server side pieces, I, I, I haven't seen any modules that um that uh, or you know different ones other than say mats, um, one which is sort of generic. Like I don't know if you're using. WordPress or Joomla or Drupal, or you know any of these different systems which one um if there's one that's really awesome in there right. um, a part of it I think is that um, uh if you look at at the solutions that have been available uh, um Scott's uh, the the filament group's uh, South Street project, which contains a bunch of really really awesome Mm -hmm. um, JavaScript libraries for handling responsive design and making the performance of it better. That just came out like three weeks ago. Right. So um, so hopefully we'll see you know like um, a Drupal module and a WordPress plugin and a bunch of other things that sort of that start using that. I, I personally think that that's the best. Right now, solution mm-hmm. um, it uses no script inside of it, um, and if you combine it with something on the server side that will allow you to switch it out down the road um, you're you've got something that works really well um, and so hopefully we'll see people start to use that um, and then you know i I know that Scott is committed um, and the Filament group generally. Uh, and the rest of us, really, anyone who's been involved with the community group, has been committed to switching, you know, full force and um, endorsing whatever the ultimate in solution is. Um, so, so that's that's what you do right now, um, and then you probably drink a little bit.
2: <laughs> a lot. Well, I did want to like you mentioned you mentioned uh, South Street. I was going to try and mention it earlier, but um, it's a collection of JavaScript solutions, including the pitcher Fill, um, you know image a responsive image uh, solution uh, but it also has a I think it's called enhance where yep. it uses Ajax to uh, if your browsers aware you know uh capable uh, and it can you know with the idea that you build mobile first which is basically just uh, focusing on the content focusing on I guess a small real estate if you will uh screen that if you have a tablet or a desktop experience that uh if, uh, that the content will be loaded in into place around it is that a correct way of, of describing what it does yeah
3: um, I enhances the one that I always forget exactly what it does it's the one <laughs> that's actually been around the longest yeah. um, I believe that enhances um, uh, testing for features and screen resolution and pulling information in around it yeah um, it's not. It's been around for a while, so it's not <laughs> like I've got to say I'm feeling really bad. Uh, Scott's gonna, <laughs> so it's gonna. If Scott here says sorry, Scott, um, it's not the one that I was the most excited about in South Street. Uh, it's um, the things that I think are. are and it's um it's good and they wrote a whole book around it so yes you should go check it out and you should use it, um, <laughs> but, but the other things that are in Salt Street that I think are really um, neat is um uh, they've got this uh, they've got Ajax include as a pattern, um, which is basically uh, you you create a link and say say the link is um, uh, is to a a bit of content that really you don't need to have on the same page if you're on um, uh, on a mobile device. Um, and so Ajax Include will um, will bring it in if the screen is larger. I think that that's the one that you're looking at, and I may be screwing that up too. Um, the other ones, um, they've got Append Around, which is really, really cool. It's the way that they've solved where to put... Um, say advertising on the Boston Globe site. And it's designed so you define different areas of the page where say an element could live depending on the screen resolution. And then um, the JavaScript watches for changes in the resolution and then puts the code into the correct spots hmm. for say an ad or whatever based on the resolution of the screen. Um, and so, you know, like on a widescreen, that ad may be in the upper right. Um, on a narrower screen, it may go down into the middle. Um, you know, on a small screen, it could be you know in a different spot. And so, essentially, the um, the the pen around code is designed so that you define different areas, and as the browser size changes, it automatically moves from place to place on the page.
2: Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like I think it's like one more cooler sounding. Solutions in this toolkit that they released, but it's like the least documented, like least written up about. But uh, but uh, the one line that's really kind of interesting is like it's a they say it's a way to achieve CSS flexbox uh, like layouts in browsers today. So it's I think it's mm-hmm. like one of the cooler
1: pieces in the toolkit
2: that they have. So cool.
1: yeah, but yeah, definitely. Well, maybe we could switch gears a little bit because we're sure. coming toward the end. I want to ask. Uh, uh, I'm really interested in this. I I know that you were super excited for a while. Maybe you still are. Hopefully, still are about TVs and about TVs as uh, mobile browsing devices. And you were doing a lot of research. I saw you tweeting from Best Buy, you know, checking out uh, all the different televisions. And where are we now with TVs as a as a browser?
3: Yeah, I'm. It's actually the thing that I'm I am most interested in at the moment. uh, although I, you know, I don't think of them as mobile devices. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> Mine certainly isn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I called. I gave a talk at um, Breaking Development um, and Mobilism uh, two conferences focused on mobile web, and I called the talk "The Mobile Web." Yeah, uh, there you yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, so, um, the 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 reason I got I got into this this topic was. Um, a few. One, we had finished the book, and frankly, I was just burnt out on mobile. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to think about it. But I had two talks coming up, and I was like, "What? You know, what am I going to talk about? I need something that I'm really interested in." Um, and uh, for quite some time, I've been interested in TVs because, um, even though I don't, I don't actually end up watching much television. Um, uh, but I find the idea uh, of the fact that that people are like eighty eight percent of people who own tablets and eighty six percent of people who um, use smartphones use their device while watching television mm-hmm. yeah I do yeah. and and so and so a lot of people are sitting there in in their living rooms watching TV and something happens on the TV and it sparks their interest and they go and they do something right on their device and right now we've got user behavior that would that's basically there's no there's no Computer assistance bridging the gap between the device in somebody's hand and the television, right humans are doing all the work, and that's really silly mm-hmm. right like if the TV was actually smart um, then there could be some really interesting interactions uh, It was recently pointed out to me that that i i've been, been talking about smart TVs um and that in the industry smart TVs specifically refer to um Televisions with computer-like characteristics in them, Mm -hmm. and I'm not. My interest isn't just limited to them. You know, I'm interested in uh, the the fact that Xbox is going to have IE on it. Um, That you know that um, that Apple TV. um, I believe that whenever it comes out with apps (laughs) on it, will have a browser on it. that ex, uh, that Google TV that there's now set top devices that connect to a TV and there're Blu-ray players that have apps and uh, I mean basically I'm talking about anything that turns that that dumb screen of glass on your wall into something that you can interact with. Um, so the the things that in addition to this just generally the the fact that um, that there's this interaction that can happen and and there's existing behavior that's interesting. I think that that thinking about TVs really changes your perspective on the ways that we're solving stuff now and makes you, makes you start to wonder about whether the solutions are going to be um, the same way that we want to tackle stuff in the future. Um, the simplest example for me has been, there have been a bunch of people who at various times during the responsive images process have proposed solutions that essentially codify things as 1x and 2x images. And whenever I saw that, I was like, "Okay, this is this is insane, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like why would we build solutions that, uh, you know, like we already recognize the the fallacy of having a single source for an image, right? Um, that that turns out to be incorrect. Now we're going to turn around and and say that two is going to be sufficient from here until eternity, right? Like that doesn't make sense. Um, another sort of way that it changes your perspective is." the resolution of a television is exactly the same resolution as a low-end iMac. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea, I mean, everything that we're doing right now is, um, or a lot, of, a lot of what we're doing right now is based on the idea that screen size is a determinant of what the UI should be. Um, and screen width in particular. And, and that's actually going to break in a really fundamental way when TVs take off. Um, because the resolution is exactly the same, but the UI for uh, you know an iMac sitting on your desk should be substantially different than the the UI for a TV across the room mm-hmm. um, that you're interacting with with the remote. Um, another another sort of interesting thing is that I, I think that when we get these devices communicating with each other, that um, the way in which we think about what each device should do um becomes different so so if if i have the tv on the wall and the phone in my hand and the two of them are combined together to to accomplish a, a single task then the two of them should not be showing the same information displayed in different sizes
1: mm-hmm.
3: right really like one might be a control for the other right or, um, you know, showing complimentary information. Or, you know, like, who knows? But the whole idea, I mean, if you think about um, just our, our way of looking at web pages, um, at the web generally, like, our our definitions are going to change, right? If if they weren't already broken with, um, you know, Ajax and things like that. But a page could be something that's executing across two screens. Mm-hmm. Um And how does that interaction happen? and how do you know if you built a web page um and the web page downloads to a phone and the person then you know basically throws that over to their t v but retains you know the page on their phone, how do you know that that's happened? How do you know that that chain has happened and so that you can actually interact with those two devices and provide an experience for both of them um and these are the sorts of things that, that I find the TV space to be really fascinating. Um, and I feel like where we're at is essentially um, if somebody were to have gone and you know documented the way that, that um, phones were working in 2006 right before the iPhone came out. Um, I think we're right on the verge of this stuff really taking off. And if Apple really does delete, release a TV or you know modifies Apple TV or something like it so that people can build apps, I think we're going to see an explosion in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, the browsers on these TVs are actually really capable. Like, there was an LG TV that I tested that um, you know, as far as html5test.com's test scores, uh, it had um, a 304 score with eight bonus points. And the hmm. iPhone 4S running uh, iOS 5 had 305 points with nine bonus points. <laughs> so I mean, like it, that's essentially the same. Like a Google TV right. is actually got a better browser in it than an iPhone does.
1: Uh-huh. Um, have you seen this? Have you seen the Samsung the smart their smart TV?
3: Um, yeah, I tested a bunch of them. Um, so I tested Samsung's um, 2012 models and 2011 models. Um, the 2012 models across the board for these TVs are much better than the 2011 models. Um, in particular, the big differences are um, CPU speed and RAM. Um, basically, these devices, uh, last year, the rendering engines were reasonably good too. They're you know WebKit-based browsers for the most part. There's a couple of opera-based um, ones. Opera actually has a TV browser, um, but you know, in both cases, the the um, the rendering engine is pretty good. Um, but last year's models, the speed of the devices were just really—they were dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2012 ones are much better. The big issue is input. Um, you know like on some of the TVs when you go to try to enter in a URL you end up basically back to predictive texting with T9 input mm-hmm. um, other devices um you know you've got uh pointers and you're trying to hit small targets on the screen um or they'll have D-pads but um when you use the D-pad in the browser it doesn't actually um quickly navigate from link to link instead it mm-hmm. um tries to control a cursor. Um, you know, All sorts of things like that that make the actual experience of using the browser really poor, even if the rendering engine is good. Right. Um, well, that's kind of interesting about Samsung. Uh, this is like their newest one.
1: I've just seen some ads for this where there's all these different ways. There's voice control. There's a remote control. There's an app. And I believe it even has a gesture. Gesture, based. Like yes. It's just
3: watching you and you're... Waving yeah. at it and it's doing stuff. So, um, I actually um, inadvertently ended up in the gesture section, gesture stuff on one of those TVs, and couldn't figure out how I got in there nor how to get out. And then once I got out, I couldn't figure out how to get back in again. Um, the salespeople said that that both the um, gesture stuff and the um, the voice stuff are gimmicks. Like that, they're they're in the stores, and they have tried multiple times to use the, the gesture and the voice controls, and have gotten nowhere with them. Now, I know that Microsoft um, has demoed gesture-based controls for Xbox, um, uh, i.e., and Xbox, right. and um, and voice-based ones as well, and I believe that they'll pull it off. Um, but i you know the samsung and lgs also done something similar with voice um but no gesture I, I think that all of those are attempts to fend off um their fears that you know apple's going to enter the, into the into the market um uh and they're going to get usurped um but their their implementations are in the same way in which you know like um phone makers have attempted to create their own operating systems that compete against you know the large computer maker operating systems and you know yeah you can go down a checklist of features for say Samsung's proprietary phone system and it will have all the features that you would you would think you need but when you actually try to use it it's just not very good right um and and that's a lot of what i, I saw in the market and they're just not selling the TVs um, as if they were computers. Like Best Buy had, um, half of their TVs had were smart TVs you could install apps on, um, but only three TVs were actually on Wi-Fi, and only one of them had a remote. Um, Fry's, every single TV had a remote, but none were on Wi-Fi. So I took my phone in and tethered all the TVs to my phone. <laughs> um, and some of them were so thirsty, it was, you know, they start downloading system updates. So I was you know, <laughs> updating, updating their TVs. Um, I was, you know, one store locally um, actually had uh, video only um, for Dave uh, <laughs> and anyone else who happens to be in Portland. It actually had uh, all their TVs on Wi Fi. So I brought their salespeople donuts and camped in their store for hours and tested uh, TV. Awesome. That's cool. And one of the things that I found, like, this is just sort of, I think, a, a real perspective on how, um, how much the market right now isn't really geared. Like, even though they're, they're, I mean, you go to Costco and smart TVs are there. Like, smart TVs are everywhere this year. Um, but nobody knows what they're getting because you can't test on any of these TVs, right? You don't, you, you, you may decide. I heard people say that they wanted Netflix. Right, mm-hmm. and some of the TVs even have Netflix buttons on their remotes, but you don't actually get to test Netflix before you leave the store. Right. So, so people are buying these TVs without knowing what they're getting. Um, I was looking at this LG TV, and I ended up on sort of the all apps menu, and all of a sudden there it had a you know it said like 220 of 200 megs or something like that in use. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, of course, these TVs have a storage limit. In none of the research I had done to date, Mm -hmm. right? On none of the placards in any of the stores Mm -hmm. did they list the storage capacity of a single TV. Right, right.
2: (laughs) Because that'd be like a computer, though, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Because they are going to be computers. They're going to be sold like computers, but they're not selling them like computers now. Yeah. In the same way in which, you know, like when you bought phones before the iPhone, nobody ever listed, you know, how much storage was on the phones. Right, or maybe the very, very high end phones did, but for the most part, that wasn't the way that that they were thinking about them um so I think that all these efforts that the manufacturers are doing to try to protect themselves, these gesture based systems and i mean I think it's partially an attempt to protect themselves, it's partially attempts to find ways to solve that input problem um but they they're in they're in a world of hurt if Apple actually gets into this market. Right. And yeah. I and I'm saying that not as a like, I'm not a, you know, I like Apple products, but I'm not a I'm not somebody who's like rah rah Apple. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a cheerleader for that team necessarily. Um, but I just I I'm looking at what's going on and and nobody nobody in the market right now is selling these TVs. Mm-hmm. Um in the way in which they need to be sold to get people excited about apps and get them excited about um, at, TVs as platforms right. for interaction. Yeah,
1: and so. that's something Apple knows how to do, for sure.
3: <laughs> exactly.
1: exactly. <laughs> um, I think we're going to have to wrap up because we've really been running long and I think we found another topic to talk to you about maybe in a year when things shake out a bit more. We can uh, revisit and talk about smart TVs again if you're up for it.
3: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Well, let's thank, uh, thank you, Jason, for being with us. It's great to meet you and talk to you. And I, I'm going to try to come out to one of these Portland mobile meetings and meet you face to face one of these days. I've always oh. been meaning to. I've got two small kids, too. So you know how it is. It's kind of hard to yes. get out sometimes.
3: Yes. Yeah, it would be great to see you there. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, so, Jason, how can people find you on the, on the internet? And
3: I am uh, a Griggs on Twitter, G R I G S. Um, I blog quite a bit at cloud blog um, blog.cloudfor.com. 4com um, my personal site has uh, not been updated in quite some time but <laughs> uh, it's userfirstweb.com um, is where that's at um, but Twitter's probably the best place yeah. Awesome, cool. well thank you so much
0: Our thanks to Jason Grigsby for joining us on Non-Breaking Space. You can check out the show notes for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv, where we'll have all the links discussed in this episode. We're also on Twitter at NBSPTV and on Facebook at the same address. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Non-Breaking Space to hear Matt Marquis say,
2: This is a true story. I can't stress this enough.
1: It's like my only good story I have.